This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Mary Fleck, author of a piece in the spring 2022 edition of Columbia called Women of the Northwest and the Great Land Grab, Overcoming the Sexism of the 1850 Donation Land Act. Well, the U.S. Army was a good wait for approval from the Hudson Bay Company, and they gave him an ultimatum and said, you're going to move out or we're going to tear the house down. I spoke with Mary Fleck by phone from her home in Seattle in April 2022. Mary, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Felix. Thanks for having me. Now, the, the idea for this story, how long have you been studying this topic? How long have you been doing research? What led you to approach Columbia about publishing an article like this? Well, um, actually, that's a really interesting story, and you would never believe it had to do with my daughter's preschool uh, at the time. <laughs> yeah, she was in preschool, and I went to a fundraiser, and you know they have these auctions and things like that. And um, this preschool is connected with Providence Mount St. Vincent, the uh, nursing home. And one of the things that they used uh, at the um, fundraiser was a photo. And it was an extraordinary photo that showed sisters from the 1800s on horseback riding side saddle. And they were using this photo to show that the sisters used to go to ask for money, just like they were asking us for money, but asking for money from the miners in the mining camps. And I just looked at that photo and I wondered what on earth were these women doing going up on horseback uh, to these mining camps. So that started me investigating the sisters of Providence who came here to Vancouver in 1856, and then I, you know, started expanding it. Once you start these things, it takes you many places, and I started looking into the women of that era. And so you're talking about your daughter's preschool. This wasn't like last year. This was a few years ago. Right. Well, I'd seen the photo quite a few years ago, and it stuck in the back of my head. Got it. Um, but I didn't start the actual research until a, a few years ago. And, you know, the your piece addresses this notion of the disadvantage that most women had in terms of having any claim to owning property as a result of that, that federal act from 1850 that looked to try to spur people moving to the West. I mean, Oregon country had only been secured through the Treaty of 1846 and Oregon Territory created in 1848. The thing I always wonder about with anything related to land claims is just the notion of, you know, the indigenous people who'd been here, you know, for millennia, all of a sudden this entire different culture and legal system just drops out of the sky. Um, and the notion of owning places and individual people having, you know, imaginary lines drawn in the dirt that that you can't legally cross or you can't legally do, do anything to where prior to that, literally for thousands of years, that concept just wasn't. It wasn't there, right? It didn't exist. Um, in the research you were doing for this piece, did you come up against these sort of bigger, I don't know, bigger cultural questions about the whole notion of ownership of property? Well, a little bit. You know, um, 
Marie Chehalis, as you know, as from reading the article, was able to make a, a land claim or have a land claim in her name by virtue of marriage. But I think that um, indigenous people did have concepts of of belonging to land and land that they used and that the land that they used regularly and traditionally, like the um, the prairie where the um, Hudson Bay Company um, decided it would make a wonderful prairie and land for its growing things. Well, the native people had been using that for a long time and they had cleared that area to use uh, for um, having camas grow and they cleared land to bring in um, deer and things that they could hunt, you know, as part of their hunting method. So I think that although land usage was different and ownership was different, I think people have always had connections that, of with the land. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and the, there's so much that's in flux in the last, I don't know, maybe maybe five years, maybe 10 years, all very intensified by you know, George Floyd, by the pandemic, this, this notion of reconsideration of these, the way history was presented. I'm in my early 50s, and the history has been presented for most of my life. I remember back in the 1970s going on field trips to little museums, and it was all very, you know, the heroic pioneers. And Indigenous people were were mentioned, if if, if at all, in terms of the you know the Battle of Seattle or the different uh, struggles with um, you know with the treaties and that sort of thing. It feels like we're in this in this really I don't fecund era in a really good way of of new examination and new exploration and reinterpretation of longstanding um, facts and longstanding stories and myths about this time. So I think your your piece is, fits right into that perfectly in my mind. Um, and one of the one of the institutions that I see a lot of um, coming up a lot lately is Hudson's Bay Company. Um, I mean, that name gets tossed around a lot. Uh, Where your article focuses down around um, Fort Vancouver in that area, what was the Hudson's Bay, how are they regarded by the people who live there, like the indigenous people or the, um, the former Hudson's Bay employees or the Americans who were arriving in greater numbers? What was, was the Hudson, was there a villain in your story? Is the Hudson's Bay Company one of the villains? (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't know if we have villains, you know, um, I think there's always pros and cons to everything, but the Hudson Bay Company was a huge, huge enterprise, and, you know, we think of them as, you know, fur traders, but it was much more than that. It had a huge agricultural um, monopoly, basically, going on where they were growing and exporting wheat to Russia, they were exporting lumber, and they it would go down to San Francisco, and lumber would even go down to what was then the Sandwich Islands, now Hawaii. But it was an enormous enterprise, and they did have a great deal of control over the area, but it also offered a lot of benefits in terms of trade. And the indigenous people from our area here in the Pacific Northwest were fantastic traders and they were trading all up and down the Columbia River. So when the Hudson Bay Company came along and they wanted to trade, indigenous people were very welcoming with a a new trade partner here with things that the indigenous people were interested in, you know, uh, fabrics and um, metal, um, you know, pots and pans and firearms. So they were certainly seen as a good trading partner. 
So, so my search for a villain is a little too reductivist. <laughs> too little, I mean, it's probably maybe it's probably more my my being steeped in these older stories about heroes and villains and this sort of very black and white approach to to Northwest history. And obviously, it's more it's uh, more complex, more gray, more um, the differences are more subtle than that. Um, I mean, there and, is, and I think that there's a willingness to go back and look at what we were taught in school. Yeah. And to look beyond the black and white, like you say, and look for the nuances, it it does give us a chance to understand things differently. Now, but there is part of your story that talks about the the U.S. Army, once once they're in charge of Fort Vancouver and Hudson's Bay Company is, you know, packed up and moved up to Victoria with the, you know, the, the 49th parallel becoming the international boundary and everything. Now, the Army doesn't, the Army set out to to get rid of Kanaka Town, where the people from the Sandwich Islands, the Hawaiian Islanders, were had set up actual homes. And the Army got rid of people and burned the houses down? Yeah, it was pretty rough. It was pretty rough for... Uh, the people who were uh, living there, when the army needed room, they were going to take the room. And what they saw as the exodus of the Hudson Bay Company, well, they were ready to push out the Hudson Bay Company as unceremoniously as possible. And that included um, the, I will call them Hawaiian families, but the people who had worked for the Hudson Bay Company. And that meant America I and her husband. And... And the army literally just evicted them and destroyed their home. Yeah, well, they gave them a chance to move. But um, William uh, was a very loyal uh, Hudson Bay Company employee. He'd worked for them for years. He was highly educated and had come over as a preacher. And his wife, Mary, um, also was very highly regarded by the um, hierarchy at the Hudson Bay Company. So William wasn't about to leave the home, that, and Mary didn't want to leave either, that they had built together. And William said, I'm not going to leave unless the Hudson Bay Company directs me to. And that, that was the position he took with the U.S. Army. Well, the U.S. Army wasn't going to wait for approval from the Hudson Bay Company, and they gave him an ultimatum and said, you're going to move out or we're going to tear the house down. And that's what happened. They took it down and burned it down. And imagine they were never compensated for the loss of their home or their land or anything. Oh, I don't see any record of that. Yeah, see, that's you know that, and maybe maybe in the in the bigger scheme of you know things that were done by different uh, governments or different organizations in the past, maybe this isn't isn't high on the list in terms of the number of people who were affected. But it certainly seems like a pretty 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 clear case of very heavy handed, very heavy handed treatment of people by the U.S. Army in the in the name of you know uh, securing Fort Vancouver and you know clearing out the. The Hudson's Bay and anyone associated with Hudson's Bay back in that transitional era. Um, now, your piece includes uh, some great images, and you obviously found some great primary material resources. What were the, the main archives that you used to, to research and to find all the different materials that, that informed the piece that you wrote? Well, um, we are very fortunate that a lot of the written history of Washington is young. You know, we are a pretty young date. And so there's a lot of recent materials. For example, the Hudson Bay Company has a lot of materials online, even though its archives are up in Manitoba. So some of that material can be accessed online. Um, Locally, here in Seattle, we have the archives of the Sisters of Providence, and they kept immense records. Some of them is 
it's, is in French and it's in the handwriting, but part of what they did was keep track of everything and they kept track of how many times they visited uh, you know, the sick neighbors and how many orphans they were taking in. So that's a wonderful resource. But I have to also mention that we have here uh, over near Sandpoint part of the National Archives that we're very fortunate to have, which includes a lot of uh, history of indigenous people. And you may be aware there was a bit of a battle recently where uh, that was going to be moved, but uh, tribal members and our Attorney General Bob Ferguson fought to keep that here. So I was able to work with one researcher there to help me find some material relating to Mary Chehalis. And I still haven't pinned down exactly what I'm looking for, but that is a is a good resource for us. So there's a, various and many different things. Yeah, that National Archives that was a that was a huge deal. Um, that was that was wonderful the way that turned out. That could have been could have been really unfortunate if that stuff had all moved to Missouri and Los Angeles. Um, that's the one thing you know. The the Catholic record keeping is pretty amazing. I haven't seen the Sisters of Providence archives, but I did spend some time looking at the. Um, the Chronicle that was compiled by the Sisters of Holy Names, you know, the big Catholic high school here in Seattle up on Capitol Hill that previously was in downtown Seattle. And they had all these great entries from, you know, times uh, in Seattle history, like the anti-Chinese riots or different, you know, weather events where they'd recorded really interesting information from a really, you know, personal standpoint that you don't normally see in the newspaper archives or maybe you find if you find a, a diary or something. But the Chronicle is a really interesting mix of Sort of personal and official record keeping that I wasn't wasn't aware of until I uh, looked at that did that Holy Names research project a few years ago. So that's that's terrific. Now, um, did the pandemic slow you down at all? Or had you done some of this research before, or were you able to do a lot of stuff remotely or online? It slowed me down a little bit uh, because I haven't been able to get into many places that I want to go. But I had enough material already uh, at hand, including some of the sacramental records of the Catholic Church. They recorded the sacraments of baptism and when people died and when people got married. And that's where I I was able to find out about Mary Chehalis, that she was not the first Mary Chehalis that Charles Prue had married. He had married another indigenous woman named Mary Chehalis. Um, and after she died, uh, remarried, and all of those records are kept, um, or the entries have been kept and recorded by the Catholic Church because they marry, the priests married and baptized many of the families of the the French-Canadian men who came here and married indigenous women and had families. Wow. Now, wait, where did those records reside, or where did, how did you come across them? They were collected by a um, historian named Harriet Minnick, and they were all put together in a book um, that she compiled. Huh. And that's just, you can, you can find that either in the library or find used copies online? It's that, it's that published that widely? or Exactly. Yeah, you can find used copies, uh, but also our, our public library has some of them in the, I think, in the Seattle room. Huh. That makes sense. Now, you have a bigger project in mind than just doing a piece for Columbia. Well, yes, I'm looking um, in a wider time span about the experiences of the Sisters of Providence, but especially in connection with other women. You know, that's what led me to this story about the 
about all the five women that I highlighted because, you know, we don't do anything alone in life. We, we always, you know, we're so interconnected and, and interdependent. And when the sisters came here, it, it was other women who helped them. So I wanted to find out what those relationships were like. Yeah, you mentioned that, the, and that's the one, the, the most interesting part of your story, I thought, was the notion of the special status that the sisters had when it came to being able to actually own and control real estate, unlike pretty much almost any other group of women anywhere in, in the Northwest at that time. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that, how that actually worked, what, what gave them that special status and how it played out? Well, it's interesting because um, there were not a lot of options career-wise for women at the time. And if you um, weren't married, um, you it was very rare not to be married. And of course, the sisters were single. So uh, that gave them, as a single woman, you could buy and sell property. But these sisters couldn't because of the rules of their organization. They were a community, and that meant that they did things communally. They couldn't own their own clothes, for example. Everything was owned by the community. So uh, for Mother Joseph, she couldn't just go out and buy a parcel of land in her own name as Esther Pariso, which was her original birth name. So the sisters formed a corporation. And I think it was one of the very first corporations, among the first corporations in Washington Territory. And as a corporation, they could do things that that they, they were not allowed to do by the rules of their community, which is buy property. And I would guess that at the time, they didn't think they were, you know, um, progressively pursuing a women's rights agenda. They were just trying to get their work done. Is that your sense as well? <laughs> I haven't come across any discussion <laughs> about women's rights yeah. yet. <laughs> in any of the archival material. Yeah. I don't think they saw themselves that way. That makes sense. It just seems like a, just the, the pragmatism of getting what needed to get done in their eyes. And Esther Paris, so she was actually a hands-on carpenter and builder and the building designer as well, I think. She was. And can you imagine what it must have been like for her arriving in Vancouver, getting off the, the, the boat in 1856 and seeing all the trees <laughs> and, and all the possible lumber. <laughs> I mean, she probably, you know, probably was happy about the, the prospect of building because that's what she did. She, she was a builder. And do we know how, where she learned that trade or learned those skills? Yes. Her father was a carriage maker and a carpenter. And he taught her and at least one of her, her brothers, the trade. Hmm. That's great. Uh, and she brought those skills with her here. <laughs> That's very handy in those days. <laughs> handy nowadays, too, even. Um, yeah. Now, do, is there a bigger book project in mind that you're working on, or have you decided that, or is that sort of still a little amorphous at this point, or what's, what's the future hold well, for you? Well, I'm going to look at the sisters um, during the lifetime of Mother Joseph and, and how they developed their mission here and the obstacles that they encountered and the successes that they had. But, you know, it really started with the women in Vancouver who helped them. And I'm trying to find out exactly who they were. But a group of women got together uh, and asked the sisters to start a hospital. And they agreed to pay 12 and a half cents a month. The women would each contribute. 
And that was the beginning of the first St. Joseph Hospital in Vancouver, which went on to become the province healthcare system. And is that, uh, would that count as the first organized hospital in the territory at that point, or...? The, uh, there was a small infirmary that the Hudson Bay Company had, and the U.S. Army also had their own small infirmary, but this would be the first um, hospital besides those. Wow, that's very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to whatever you do next with this material. If you want to do another Columbia piece, keep us in mind, or if you want to excerpt whatever your bigger piece ends up being, we'd, we'd love to have a chance to publish it. So we, we love getting in on the ground floor when someone like you was working on research like this and putting together a wonderful article like you did for the spring 2022 edition. It's called Women of the Northwest and the Great Land Grab, Overcoming the Sexism of the 1850 Donation Land Act. Mary Fleck, thanks for joining us today on Columbia Conversations. Thank you very much. Mary Fleck's piece is called Women of the Northwest and the Great Land Grab, Overcoming the Sexism of the 1850 Donation Land Act. You'll find it in the spring 2022 edition of Columbia. Columbia is the quarterly magazine of Northwest history, reaching thousands of readers around the old Oregon country. To propose an article, to subscribe, to advertise, or to give a gift subscription, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.